This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. You're really going to enjoy today as we have Bob Kendrick on, the president of the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, as they'll as they're celebrating a major anniversary. Really one of the smartest guys that we got in the game. The Ivy Leaguer and what a player he was and now a broadcaster. He's a professor. He's a writer. Doug Glanville will join us. And then one of my all-time favorite, Oakland Zone, the All-Star. And you see him on NBC Sports California doing A's pre- and post-game live. The great Bip Roberts. And then we'll check in with our old friend Marty Lurie, who's truly one of the great baseball historians. And, of course, does a terrific job on KMBR 680. But joining us first, it was a special treat. What this man has done for the Negro League Museum over the years, and if you ever get a chance to go to Kansas City, I recommend you go to the Negro League Museum, and right next to it is the Jazz Museum, and also another wonderful museum there in Kansas City is the World War I Museum. Uh, They've got barbecue, and they got museums. Kansas City is a great place, but uh, let's check in with the president of the Negro League Museum, Bob Kendrick. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time today. Man, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So two years ago, I was traveling with the Raiders to take on the Kansas City Chiefs. And the the first thing that I did when we arrived on, so we arrived on Friday night. Saturday, I go to the Negro League Museum. And it was so funny. The young lady goes, it's $8. But if you want to go over to the Jazz Museum, it's 15 And I'm like, this is the biggest no-brainer in the world. So I got to, go to the Negro League Museum and then to the like the Jazz Hall of Fame. What a special treat that is! I mean, what you guys have done uh, with what you've done with the Negro League Museum, what they've done with the Jazz, it truly is incredible. No, it really is. It's special and it's unique to Kansas City, where you can come to what is called the Museums at 18th and Vine and get two unique slices of culture baseball as it relates to the Negro Leagues and, of course, the American Jazz Museum. And, of course, those two went hand in hand back in that era uh, when Negro Leagues baseball was at its height. You know, the jazz musicians by day would come out and watch these guys do their thing. By night, the football players would go watch them do their thing. It was a very close-knit group. They traveled what was known as the old Chitlin Circuit, where they were mapping out routes in which they would have places to stay. But there was a mutual admiration and no better place to have that cultural crossroads be reconnected than is at Historic 18th Divine in Kansas City. 
you know, what's fascinating about Kansas City is obviously you guys do barbecue better than any, anywhere else. And, and, it, <laughs> and, it, and it's funny, like you go to Joe's of Kansas City, you go to Jack Stacks, you go to Arthur Bryant's, like everybody has their place. But what I like to tell people about Kansas City, it's a great museum town because not only do we talk about the Negro League Museum, jazz, but the World War One, because the Raiders, we would always stay across the street. The World War One Museum's fascinating. Absolutely gorgeous. You know, and and there are so many wonderful cultural institutions here in Kansas City. It doesn't get enough credit. You know, more times than not, when we think about culture, we think either East Coast or West Coast. But, man, I would challenge people to look at Kansas City and the dearth of culture that is in this, in the heart of the country, and, you know, the heart of America. Or as my friend, the late great Buck O'Neill would say when he came to Kansas City, in 1938, he says, I knew that I was coming to the heart of America. I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe. Man, Kansas City was jumping. And, and, and so we're, we're pleased with that degree of culture. And we're part, you know, we're part of those wonderful institutions and museums and art galleries that make Kansas City special. Yeah, Kansas City is a uh, is a great town. And, you know, one of the reasons I was so interested in the Negro League Museum is my grandfather played in Major League Baseball. He was the MVP in 1947. And Jackie Robinson, in his very first at-bat, grounded out to my grandfather. And when I went to the Negro League Museum, you know, I, I learned so much about how successful the league was and how, you know, for African-Americans and although everybody worked in the ballpark, it was such a special league. Oh, it was. It, it really was. And, and, and really, wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. And so sometimes we look only at the courage and the romantic nature of the courage that these athletes demonstrated in the face of adversity to play the game that they love. And that is so romantic and it's a pertinent part of the story. But what is oftentimes overlooked is the fact that Negro League Baseball was a thriving black baseball business enterprise that was a catalyst for black businesses. And so that is a big part of this story that sometimes is overlooked. And so you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so many great players. And one of the really cool things at the Negro League Museum is you guys have that baseball diamond and you got a statue at every single position. And you like when you're walking through there, you're like, this is really kind of magical. Yeah, no, it's called the Field of Legends. And the Field of Legends, as you just beautifully described, is a mock baseball diamond that houses 10 of 12 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats. Now, their significance is the fact that they were 10 of the first group of Negro League players to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. So that's how our all-star team was chosen. On the outside, you might remember, looking in, almost poetically, is the late, great Buck O'Neill, the co-founder of this great museum, legendary Negro League in his own right. But in that capacity, he's managing that great all-star team. And all the statues are life-size based on the height, weight, data information that we had on each of them. And I think it's one of the most amazing displays in any museum anywhere in the world. Now, obviously, I'm biased. But, man, by the time you take on the full experience at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, 
by the time you've bared witness to everything that they had to endure just to play baseball in this country, and then the very last thing that happens here is you can take the field. And, and you know what? It is almost that same triumphant feeling that Jackie Robinson gave to black folks all over this country when he walked out on that field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers to break baseball six decade long self-imposed color barrier. And so people feel it. I'll never forget my dear friend, the great Ozzie Smith, the wizard. He was here when we had our grand opening of the new museum in 1997. And man, when he walked out on that field, he said it was one of the most eeriest feelings he ever had in his life. You know, because, and it was very emotional for him because he understood that he stood on the shoulders of these immortal giants so that he could play this game that he loved, that allowed him to go into the Hall of Fame, that allowed him to become the wizard. And that was not lost on him. And he was literally moved to tears that day. And, and, and I think countless other African-American and Hispanic ball players carry that same feeling when they come here. Because for them, this is their mecca. They don't play. There's no and if buts about it. They don't play had it not been for those players in the Negro Leagues who, as I like to say, forged a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. You know, I, I think baseball has been kind of lazy and it's, it's kind of bothered me. I mean, we do a great job honoring Jackie Robinson, but it's like all we do is honor Jackie. Like, and I was, as you were coming on, I was talking about Larry Doby. Larry yeah, Doby. I heard a little bit of that. He came just after Jackie in the American League with the Indians, went through everything Jackie went through. He was a great player. He was a manager. And I bet if we went to the modern-day player and said, who's Larry Doby, they've got no idea. Not too many people know. I mean, you know, but that's, that's kind of how we are as a society. We always remember the first. We rarely ever remember the second. And we just opened, as we reopened the museum two weeks ago, we just opened a new exhibition called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit chronicles all of the players who broke their respective Major League teams color barriers from Jackie in 1947 with Brooklyn Dodgers to the Boston Red Sox becoming the last team to integrate 12 years later in 1959 when they signed Elijah Pumpsy Green, of course, who lived and died out in the Bay Area. We lost him sadly last year. And... and I can tell you now, it didn't get any easier for Ponce Green in 1959 than it did for Jackie Robinson in 1947. Yet again, we don't oftentimes celebrate the second guy. And if you're number 16, you can pretty much forget it. It's only been over the last decade that people have really started to kind of pay respect to the pioneering role that Larry Doby had when he joined the Cleveland Indians in 1947, literally weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League, Doby does it in the American League, and Larry Doby never played a day in the minor leagues. He went straight from Ephraim Manley's Newark Eagles over to the Cleveland Indians. And Larry, Larry Doby was a baby. He's 23 years old. He was a baby thrown into a powder keg of racism, yet he handled himself with the same grace, class, and dignity that Jackie carried himself with. But, you know, that's just kind of, like I said, that's just kind of how we are as a society. But for us, it's important that you know all of their stories. They're all trailblazers. And, and again, our mindset is if we don't tell these stories, who will? 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you. I'm like, why are we not talking about the other guy? I mean, I, I, I get it. We retire his number. Jackie Robinson was great. We know all about Jackie Robinson, but we don't know about the other guy. And I think we should celebrate them. And, and, and everybody, I mean, Josh Gibson's one of the greatest players of all time. It's like yeah. our, our modern day players have no clue. But I, I think what you're doing there uh, with, with celebrities tipping their cap to the anniversary, to the Negro Leagues, I, I think this is going to hopefully educate people about what you guys are doing and what you have there at the museum. No, I, I totally agree. And for me, there's no greater thrill than when I get the current major leaguers coming to visit the museum. You know, this whole COVID-19 thing has been devastating uh, for all of us in this country and certainly for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But one of the things I miss most is the fact that this time of year we will be having baseball fans coming. Baseball teams absolutely would have been coming to the museum because everybody was connected to this whole 100th anniversary theme. And I can tell you now, while they may not know the history prior to coming, now, those who are real students of the game understand the history of this game. But as I tell people all the time, you don't know what you don't know. And so unless somebody sat you down and told you about the history of the Negro Leagues, you really had no way to know because it's not in the pages of American history books. So when they are now coming to the museum and they're being introduced to this story, and the thing that I oftentimes share with them is the fact that the common denominator that they have with the players who played in the Negro Leagues man, it's love of the game. Yeah, a lot of times we think that the current players don't love the game because they are compensated so well. They make a lot of money. And, and as fans, we're fickle. We, we relate everything in our society to money. But they still love the game. They're still playing a game that they would have played for free. Well, they did play it for free when they were kids. And if they had to play it for free, they played the game today for free because they do love the game. But as I tell people all the time, you'll never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. They had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure to play baseball in this country. And that's not lost on them. It resonates. And, and as, as, as people who make their living in this game, they understand how tough this game is to play under the best of circumstances. So when you prop it up against the backdrop of segregation and the challenges that they had to deal with, they can relate to that. And you know what I think it does also? It gives them a greater appreciation for just how good they have it today. And so the whole idea of this tip your cap thing, which has just become this phenomenon. I mean, I wish I could tell you that when I dreamed up this crazy idea, I knew it was going to do what it's done, but I'd be lying if I told you that because I had no idea that it would take off the way that it has. But it was all built around a simple call to action and as you well know, in our sport, there's nothing more honorable you can do than just a simple tip of the cap. And so as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues, which we certainly believe to be one of the most significant occurrences, not in baseball history, but in American history, I thought it would be really cool if we could get fans, athletes, entertainers, dignitaries, business leaders to all come together and just tip their cap in, in honor and in recognition of the Negro Leagues. And this thing has just gone crazy. As you know, four American presidents have tipped their caps. We've had General Colin Powell, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Billie Jean King, Bob Costas. We even got a tip of the cap from the space shuttle 
from the astronaut in the space shuttle. So, so we've gone out of worldly with this thing. So, you know, that's how a crazy idea has just taken off. But man, it fills me with such great pride to see so many people rallying around what I like to say, the winning spirit of the Negro Leagues at a time when I really think baseball needed this and our country needed this. I, there's no doubt. And, you know, you mentioned the struggles. These guys aren't flying around on private jets. These guys don't have state-of-the-art clubhouses like we have today, right? Uh, these guys are traveling around on buses. There are certain hotels they can't stay in. There's certain restaurants that won't serve them. I mean, players of today have, like, like no clue what it was like no. to play in the Negro Leagues. No, no, and I think that's where that perspective comes along. Because when I share with them, there were times, many times, when these teams could go into a town Man, they could fill the ballpark up and yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers. But what you have to admire is that they never allowed that adversity to kill their love of the game. So if I've got to sleep on the bus and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. And really, that's the prevailing spirit that you feel when you visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I think people sometimes think that it's going to be a sad, somber kind of story because you know that it is set against the backdrop of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history. But we treat it as a celebration. It is the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. These athletes never cried about that social injustice. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you? I'll just create a league of my own. And you think about that. That is the American way. And that's why I say that the story of the Negro Leagues embodies the American spirit, unlike any story in the annals of American history. America was trying to prevent them from playing her so-called national pastime, but it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. It's so inspirational. You, you, you're right. This is not like a sad story. I mean, because <laughs> like, like, like you learn that the military, the United States military integrated two years after Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and these players, they changed the world. They changed the military. They they, it was amazing they the change and, that they created. And when you hear someone, the magnitude of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the greatest champion of civil rights in this country, say that he could not have done what Jackie, what Larry, what Nuke did, that tells you how monumental that moment in time was. Because honestly, I don't know if Jackie realized the levity of what he was doing. I don't know if you could possibly understand how monumental that moment in time was going to be, even when he signed up for it, because Jackie wasn't playing for Jackie. Jackie was literally carrying 21 million black folks on his back because, man, had he failed, an entire race of people would have failed. And that's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to have to bear in a game that is predicated on failure. You know, our sport, 
the crux of our sport is failure. You're going to fail more times than you succeed in this game. You know, if you get three hits every 10 trips to the plate, man, you're a Hall of Famer. And he can't fail. And, and so, yeah, there was so much riding on him and subsequently the other players who were carrying that same weight as they crossed over into the major leagues. So, you know, again, this game tough enough to play under the best of circumstances. No less carrying a, an entire race of people on your shoulders. Now, with all that said, then you can walk across the hall to the Jazz Museum. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're looking at Ella Fitzgerald's gown. You're looking at all the trumpets. I mean, what, what you guys have there is truly special. Let's end on this because uh, my buddy, I got one of my good friends lives in Kansas City. And everybody in Kansas City has their own spot. Everybody believes this place is the best. So if I was <laughs> you and you're saying the best barbecue spot, you're going to take me, what is your go-to? Well, I'm taking you to Gates Barbecue, but let me preface it by saying I'm biased because the proprietor, Mr. Ollie Gates, is helping me build the Buckle Neal Education and Research Center. So my, my opinion may not be completely <laughs> unbiased, but, you know, even if he wasn't, that's where I would take you. That's where Buckle Neal ate. Uh, it's yeah, one of my Gates, favorite places. Gates, but Gates is Gates, close to you. Gates, yeah, Gates is pretty close to us. It's right up the street from Arthur Bryant's. And those yeah. are the two original barbecue restaurants in Kansas City, homegrown barbecue restaurants. And so I'm a little bit partisan to Gates. But I tell you what, you can't go wrong with all the ones that you rolled out. I can tell you didn't hit a lot of spots here in Kansas City. So you rolled off a laundry list of places. They're all good. I, I've been to them all. I went to the original, the uh, Kansas, uh, Joe's of Kansas City, where there's a gas station. The gas station. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been to them all. And, and let me tell you, recently, this is crazy. So – Ace Hardware, I'm in the Bay Area, right? I'm in San Jose, California, which you would know like Silicon Valley. And I'm in Ace Hardware, and they've got a whole Traeger smoker section. And all of a sudden, I look down. They have Arthur Bryant's barbecue sauce. I went, oh, my God. I bought all four bottles that were there. I couldn't believe that <laughs> I could get Kansas City sauce in Ace Hardware. I'm like, Arthur Bryant's is fabulous. <laughs> And, and and that's the oldest barbecue establishment in Kansas City, and then Gates would be next. And, and Gates was uh, the forerunner of a barbecue place called Old Kentuck, and that was Jackie Robinson's favorite barbecue place when he ate he, when he was here that one season that he played for the Kansas City Monarchs in 1945. He liked the ribs at Old Kentuck Barbecue, which became the forerunner of the Gates barbecue chain of restaurants that are here in Kansas City today. Yeah, I've never been to a, a barbecue spot in Kansas City and went, yeah, this isn't that good. They're all, for us Californians, <laughs> they're all fabulous. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time. We truly appreciate it. Uh, having been to your museum, it is absolutely fabulous. I recommend it to everybody. And if there's ever anything that you guys need help with and promoting with, because we got a lot of listeners here, and Bay Area is a big spot, please come on the program. Let us help you promote it. Well, I absolutely will. I thank you for the opportunity. I thank those who are listening uh, for their support, consideration of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You can learn more about us. And if you're so inclined, make a contribution to support the mission of the museum at www.nlbm.com. Bob, take care, be safe, and we'll, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 
that was really a special treat to have Bob on the program. And it's always special. I always feel like we're smarter after we hear from Doug Glanville. Terrific player, turned broadcaster, turned writer, turned podcaster, and also a professor. Here is the great Doug Glanville. Our next guest is truly one of our favorite players turned media guy, turned writer, turned podcaster. The great Doug Glanville is with us here on A's Cast Live. It's always, uh, we always appreciate the time and look forward to having you on. Yeah, it's been a blast. I've had a blast, you know, so thanks for bringing me back. And yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's figure this thing out, right? <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it because, you know, I think the first surprising thing was people thought more players were going to test positive. And I guess if you could take a positive out of this as we're getting started, less guys tested positive than they thought. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, uh, you know, been also some hiccups with testing and intake, and they're trying to sort it out. Uh, and, and we mentioned earlier the, the holiday, July 4th being, you know, part of it. But it's got to be this way. They're still figuring some things out. And because of the uncertainty of, of how this exactly works, how the virus acts in some ways, you know, you have these windows of time where negatives can be positive and you're just trying to uh, actually hone in on it. So they're, they're trying to be patient that with frequent testing and get as much uh, information as they can to keep everybody safe. Uh, and so, yeah, they'll probably have more setbacks, uh, but just hopefully that they're still on firm enough ground that they could play safely for everybody involved. You know, over the years, talking to executives, you know, they, 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 they get their team ready for the start of the year. Then they focus on the draft. Then it's the trading deadline. And then after, you know, the trading deadline and then the waiver wire process, there's really not much they can do and they just got to ride it out. I just think this year, general managers, presidents of baseball operations, whatever fancy title you have, you're going to have to do some serious work this year because it's so condensed. You can't allow your team to get off to a bad start. What are you going to do with a player who gets out to a bad start? You got all these guys on a taxi squad that what if they're playing well down there? I mean, the roster moves, how do, how do you see it? Roster moves for these front office guys in this quick 60 game season. Well, you know, I'd, I'd take a deck of cards and, you know, add, you know, a few more and just throw it up in the air and just like grab the first 30 guys. <laughs> I mean, it, it is that off the rails uh, because just imagine you start off poorly for two weeks or, you know, you can be traded, right? The trade deadline somewhere in the, in a 60 game schedule, they have to make swift moves. It is no longer a marathon. It is a sprint. And they're, they have to literally a team like the Rays, for example, who love matchups or the A's is a perfect example too. the matchups and the details, you're going to try to maximize every single matchup that you can because, you know, there's no days off here in the sense of resting. you got to get after it because, you know, as the Nationals showed last year, they were 19-31 and 31 after 50 games, and where would they be in this kind of season? So you're going to see a lot of action, uh, a lot of moves, a lot of changes, and, and a lot of focus on matchups, analytics, and bullpen usage. And that's why it's kind of anybody's game <laughs> right now. Uh, you know, anybody could get out of the gate quickly and, and just get a commanding lead that someone can't catch them from. 
And the schedule isn't fair, but you know what? Get over it. I mean, it's at, at some point that the schedule will favor you, whether it's how many games you play at home versus on the road. You know, like the A's got to go to Houston seven out of ten times. The Red Sox got to go to Yankee Stadium seven out of ten times. But it's like, is it fair? Well, it's hard to make anything fair in 60 games. But, you know, you got to go out there and get 27 outs. It's just you got to go out and play and not worry about whether at what point the schedule is favoring you or not. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, that's that's your job as a player. You, you know, you can't get caught up in all that because you never know who you match up well against. You might match up well in, 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 against the Yankees or whatever team, and that becomes an advantage. I mean, you just don't know who you're going to be faced on a given day uh, where it might play to your to your strength, lefty versus righty, whatever it may be. So I, I – that would be a, a, a very poor use of energy for any team to worry about that. They just have to get out there and, and play and focus on the matchups. And, and because you just never know how, how it's going to play out when you get onto the field. You know, we recently in baseball, we talked about the juice baseball and the home runs are going up. And do you see this in the 60 games? Does this favor the hitters? Or does this favor the pitchers, especially with all the extra levers at your disposal? Yeah, I'm going to lean towards the pitchers, just given that you have all these matchups. You have, you know, possibly new faces. And, you know, as a hitter, you get more comfortable with that familiarity in, in these matchups. And uh, so, you know, especially when you're a veteran player, right? you know, you've been, okay, I know this guy kind of, uh, you know, there's, there's a sense of familiarity that you get with, with rhythm, with repeat events. So that's, that's tricky, especially when they can, okay, third inning, we're going to bring this guy. I don't see a lot of pitchers going deep in the game for a while, if at all. You know, they already are, are going five innings plus barely anyway. So now with the fact that they have this weird spring training, I think they'll, you'll see a lot more pitchers go in these short starts, and that will preserve the, the analytical matchup. So, yeah, I say advantage pitcher, and, you know, we'll see how the home runs play out, but. Even so, anyone who can keep the ball in the ballpark is going to have a huge advantage uh, in this short season. You know, I've been reading around about other teams, and we're so worried about certain guys, uh, pitchers. I've been reading around how, oh, yeah, this guy got on the mound. He's already blowing 99 to 100 miles an hour. Right. <laughs> the game's just so different. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, the, the velo, right, the arms. And they know that they might only – have to face a, a couple of batters, a few batters, you know. So, you know, and the three battle rule, that was, you know, interesting development. So, that, yeah, it's I, that's what's fun, though. Yeah, who knows? Who knows who's going to play well early? And by the way, you don't even know which players may end up opting out. You, you, they, you, know, you, know, you know, you don't wish it on anybody. You know, people may get sick, something changes, and then all of a sudden the heart of your lineup is gone. That's not good. That's going to change the complexion of any team. So sit tight and expect anything, and in some ways that can be fun. Uh, so uh, it also gives a lot of teams a chance that may not ordinarily have one. You know, I've had a running joke for years here saying that if I can't get on a Southwest flight and be to you with under three hours to your town, we shouldn't be in the same division. And that's <laughs> right. why, yeah, that's why I, uh, Houston and Texas should not be in the West. And your partner – Jason Stark said yesterday on MLB Network that this could be the start of starting to look at really doing a realignment 
and cutting all the travel for the West Coast teams because they're, you've played in the East. It's a competitive advantage, less travel than the West, and maybe expansion to 32 teams. The way this is going to happen, the way everybody's going to kind of play each other in the West and the Central and the East, what do you think about that? Realignment? Maybe someday we don't have American League, National League. It could be completely different. I, I know for our fan base, if you're bringing in the Dodgers more, of course, bringing in the Giants, that's going to mean a hell of a lot more than the Rangers and the Astros. <laughs> yeah, well, let me tell you, man, I played for the Texas Rangers, and that travel was horrific. And it wasn't like the Mariners who flew to Puerto Rico or whatever that year. But, you know, you, you, you think, oh, yeah, the, the West starts in Texas. I mean, that, that's like halfway through the country, man. I mean, we were playing every trip was four hours, five hours. And the thing is, it's also so hot that we didn't play uh, we didn't play day games on getaway days. So you imagine you you play a night game, you finish at whatever eleven o'clock because it's like thirteen to eleven, and then you get on a plane at one in the morning and you get into Seattle at like six seven in the morning or something crazy. So it it, it was rough. And and so what's interesting about this season is there is a lot of experimentation. They're going to try things, the DH, whatever. And I think there'll be things that are going to stick. And, and especially with the geography of being in your, you know, sort of part of the state, the country, AL East, NL East, there's a lot of rivalry and potential there because it's so easy to travel. And then maybe you preserve that World Series or those playoffs for something special for people you hadn't seen all season, just like, you know, you know back in the day. So I, I believe a lot of stuff are going to percolate back to the, to the center of the sport in terms of... Uh, elements that are always entertaining for fans and in some ways efficient for travel also for players. Last year I was with the A's on a road trip and we're down in Anaheim. And as you know, Artie Moreno will not do a day game for getaway game because he's worried about the money. So by the time we left Anaheim to go to Texas, we arrive in Texas like almost at 4 a.m. in the morning. You got to play that 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 night. I mean, it's just the travel's brutal. I hope this is going to change it. Uh, when you start looking at this season, sixty games, we could see some stuff we've never seen before. What are you looking most forward to with these sixty games? I, I'm very interested in the the strategic adjustment for each team uh, based on what they've done in the past 162 games. You know, it's going to be compelling to see what they do. What you know, pinch running, pinching, defensive placement, shifts, bullpen usage, uh, lineup construction. I mean, all that's fair. It's all for a fair game right now. Anything can go. And you know how a lot of these teams come up with revolutionary ideas that start to become part of the culture. What's it going to be in 2020? Is it going to be the use of the defensive replacement? Is it going to be a, a weird kind of double switch with the DH or something? You know, I don't know. So all that is. Uh, fair game and even the analytics that the, that is used is going to look differently in a shortened schedule is it a, sh a small sample size or can they really bet on it the next time they play that same team back in you know september so i mean all bets are off but you have to figure out what uh is going to create that advantage and most importantly get out of the gate quickly and i mean you'll see some really good teams start slowly and, and never recover and, and that's what's probably exciting about, you know, what, what the Miami Marlins might do or something, because they know that, you know, Yankees or teams trip out of the gate and start off like eight and 17. Their season is over. <laughs> it's over. 
because remember, you, you know, you're playing in your division. You have to beat each other up. And every time you lose a game, you're, you're losing a game of, of distance from, from uh, that, that position or first place. So yeah. you can fall out really quickly. Uh, you can get back quickly, but you can fall out quickly and, and may not see the light of day. Yeah, it feels so much like an NFL season to where one win really is like three wins or one yep. loss is really like three losses. It's like you go through like, I don't know, a three, four game losing streak. It's going to feel like death. I mean, it will because you could be in second place, play the division leader, go on a three, four game losing streak and then play them the next week and look up and you're eight games farther out from where you started there. Uh, that's how quickly it is. And, and, and that's why. You're, I think you'll see a lot of real critical matchups. They're going to look every game. It's, you know, Dusty Baker was on our podcast. He said, you know, hey, when you had 162 games, you could pace certain things, rest the guy, do all these things. That's not on the table anymore. I mean, if Mike Trout plays, Mike Trout's playing 60 games. That's what's happening. You know? And so they're going to run people out there and, and, and make sure that they have the best situation for every possible scenario they can. We had Bob Kendrick on the program, the president of the Negro League Museum, as we're going to be celebrating the anniversary of the Negro League Museum. I've actually been there before, so I know a lot about it. And, you know, I was talking to him about, you know, one thing that's always bothered me is that, you know, we only celebrate really Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby, the Hall of Famer, great player, uh, you know, what he did in that manager, you know, it's like we don't celebrate him. And he went through the exact same things just weeks after Jackie Robinson in the American League. And we got talking and, you know, at this time where we are in this country, you know, baseball needs to step up and a lot of sports leagues need to step up. What do you think baseball can do to help the African-American community and hopefully get more African-American players and kids playing baseball again? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I wrote a column uh, that posted today on ESPN.com about that. I, I, I rattled off five things that I thought baseball could do. Uh, you know, and one of it is related to uh, the, the leadership component and the diversity of the leadership. There's you know, so many qualified candidates from all backgrounds, and they've made a lot of strides to try to unearth those qualified candidates. And, and that helps a lot because in the decision-making, you, you cut into that homogeneity where it's natural after a certain while, like, oh, I'm going to hire my friend who I went to Yale with or whatever. And these things kind of tend to perpetuate a, a narrow diversity set. So they're, they're looking at these things, uh, but there's so many other ways. I mean, how about analytics? We were just talking about that. You can use that, that technology, that science to really assess some of their other objectives that are socially driven, like having diversity, having inclusive policy, making sure that you're embracing and recognizing uh, what players of color are experiencing that you didn't realize because they weren't obvious, they were subtle. Uh, those things all play into creating an environment that really I, baseball should celebrate. It's a very diverse sport. And I enjoyed that aspect of learning from people from all over the place. I enjoyed playing with guys that you had a preconceived notion about because of their background or whatever. And then the season ends and you go, wow, that's the guy I want to give the ball to in the ninth inning. Uh, that, that's the best of sport. That's what sport can give us. And baseball can be in the, in the front of that because we, it's a sport that, and all sports are obsessed with equity. They want it to be fair. They want the rules to be fair and applied across the board. And that's a great way to start for what our country is striving for. And now, you know, certainly paying much more attention as it pertains to race. So all those would support uh, what I think could be a much better uh, a game 
if we really understood how to embrace all of us in, in so many different ways, because we all have so much to offer. Are you going to be teaching this fall? I am. Uh, University of Connecticut, a course called Sport in Society. And uh, this will be my fourth semester teaching, taught at Penn and Yale and now at UConn. So absolutely. And is it going to be all online? Uh, it, it will now, yes. They, they have the online because of, the, obviously, the circumstances. I taught last year, our semester was interrupted. It was, it was in class, and then it became online. Uh, but we cover how sports uh, influences our society. We look at the law. We look at economics. We look at media. We look at communications. We look at a lot of different ways, uh, even the political landscape. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a not-stick-to-sports type of course. But you see how important sports have been. Because even now, as baseball is non-essential, we, we recognize the lessons of team is essential for our country right now. They are essential, I should say. And we, we need that reminder as much as possible. You are truly one of the most fascinating guys in our game. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. Everything that you do, I don't know how you have all the time, but uh, <laughs> it is fascinating to follow your career. We always appreciate the time. And, and hopefully the next time we're talking, we're actually talking about games. Yeah, I hear you, man. It's always a pleasure, man. Thank you for the compliment. And yes, let's uh, let's get over this in baseball. Come on, you're right there. Uh, I'm very excited for um, for some games. So hopefully, cross our fingers, this happens. Doug is the man. I mean, all the stuff he does, it is so impressive. And also impressive, you know how much I love Bip Roberts. I grew up watching him play. He was one of my favorite players growing up. And now getting to know him over the years and doing television with him and radio with him and now streaming with him, here is the great Bip Roberts. I can't say this enough. This kid from Oakland is one of my favorites. I grew up watching him. So much respect for his career. What a great player he was, and now a broadcaster with NBC Sports California doing A's pre- and post-game live, and we always love bringing him back home here on A's Cast Live. The former All-Star, the great Bip, Rob- Bip Roberts. Bip, sir, how are you? Hey, Tony, Tony, it's always good to hear your voice, man. I'm doing great. How about yourself? Man, we're hanging in there. I just, I mean, I, I'm Jones and I need some baseball. I mean, I've never, I've never had this much time off in my life. I know this is just such a weird time in our lives. You know, we've never experienced anything like this with no baseball, no, no major sports, and you know, being locked down like we've been. And so we've all had to make adjustments accordingly. I know a lot of people are suffering, but you know, in the end, I think we're all going to be okay because. I don't think this is going to last forever. And, um, you know, just having 60 games of baseball, I think that'll get us to the 21, the 2021 season. And, you know, that's just something we can look forward to. There is no doubt about it. And, you know, when I think about a 60 game schedule, Bip, I mean, we've never seen anything like this. I've asked historians, have we seen anything like this? They say no. I mean, this is going to be like playoff baseball game one through 60. It is. And, you know, we were talking the other day, a couple of us was talking with Judy Babbitt and some of our other colleagues. And we were saying the A's normally get off to a slow start. And that can't happen this year. Everyone's going to have to, as they say in, in, in a, a horse race, you're going to have to get out the blocks quick and you're going to have to maintain your stride because I think everybody's going to be playing every game as if it's a playoff game. And so, I think every team understands that. We know that when the A's get on a streak, 
that they put together consistent streaks. And so this is going to be one of those times where leadership is going to be key. They're going to have to really understand that they're going to have to push guys who may get off to slow starts. And for some reason, you know, when you do get off to a slow start, you know, the team has a tendency to fizzle a little bit. But I think with the leadership that the A's have and the, the, the lineup that they have, the great defense they have, and the pitching staff, I, I think that, you know, they're going to take each series as it is to be a playoff series. And, and when they play on that high level, they usually get the job done. So we're hoping that based on what they've done in the past, they can, you know, forego that slow start and get off to a great start and give us some joy around here in the Bay Area. Do you think we could do some type of voodoo mindset where we could like get in their heads and say, you've already played the start of the season. You've already <laughs> struggled. This is mid season. Is there, is there something we could do to like, like get these guys in mid season form now versus the slow start in the past? You know, I, I wish I could say yes, but you know how fundamentally sound this game of baseball is, you know, you figure pitchers will be ahead of hitters. And we've got some great hitters. And so as I'm watching some of the highlights and I watch the, 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 the squad games, the inter-squad games, I'm seeing that some of our hitters are still behind right now. So that's what bothers me the most is that if you have great pitching, you can dominate a lineup right now. I'm just hoping that some of our guys take the approach of using the opposite field until they get their timing down because that will help them get – uh, get get on 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 a consistent track sooner than if they go up there trying to hit home runs. So I, I think if they take the right approach, and that's going to be key this year, the right approach to your start, I think that'll give you consistency. And then with consistency, you get confidence. And so we know that this is a confident team. They just have to get to that point where they feel comfortable. And with comfort, you do can get consistency. And another thing is, it's sixty games. So most of these guys can play 60 games. I don't think I'll see anybody coming out of the lineup unless Bob Melvin decides to take someone out the lineup. But the more they play, the better they're going to get. And I think that's just around the league. Because when you look around and you see all these other inter-squad games, those guys are not swinging the bats that well either, unless their pitchers are behind or, or their fastball is not behind. But for the most part, everybody's in the same boat this year. It's just a matter of who can row the boat the fastest right now. You know, I, I think about in your career, one of, the, one of the things that made you who you are is how mentally tough you were. And you had to go through some stuff early on, which a lot of people may not remember how you were a rule five pick. You eventually got sent down. You then came back up. I mean, mental toughness was a huge part of your game. So I want to put you in a room with Franklin Barreto. It's just you and Franklin. And you're going to sit down and you're going to talk to him. What would you say to Frank Lombaretto? Because now it is his time to take over the position of second base for the Oakland Athletics. Yeah, you know, when you go through adversity, it makes you tougher. It makes you more appreciative of the things that you get in the game. The one thing that you do understand is that, you know, Tim Flattery had a saying back in our days: You take no prisoners and you play every game, you get two hits or a heart attack. And so he's got to play with that type of intensity because he's a game changer. When he's on his game, he is one of the better little young players that I've seen. You know, but when his confidence is not as high, he's not that good. So, you know, when you're young like I was, my confidence went up and down because I was a little five. 
But when I went back to AAA, I had learned the things that I needed to learn in order to be successful when I got back to the big leagues. And I always said to myself, I'll never let anyone take that away from me again. So he's had an opportunity to learn on the major league level. He's had an opportunity to understand what adversity is all about. And now he has to understand that he doesn't want anyone to take this away from him. And so as long as he has the strong mind and the confidence in his ability, he will succeed. The one thing he can't do is allow someone to take his confidence away from him. So I think that everything he's been through, he's built up that armor and he should be ready to go because what we saw last year when he came up is a kid that can play on this level. So he's got to take that as far as what we call deposits in the bank and understand now he wants to deposit more. And the only way you deposit more now is to believe that you're the best player on the field. And that's okay because you need confidence as a young player and you have to have arrogance at times and you just can't let people get you down. You have to go out there believing that every day you're going to get two hits. And if he believes in himself, then he's going to get the job done. And so that's some of the, the thoughts that I've always had or had back then when I was in AAA was that when I get back there, the things that I can do, I'm going to do it because that's what I do, not because of what someone else wants me to do or try this or try that. Greg Nettles once told me the reason you're up here is because you can play. When you let people change the way you play is when you end up back in AAA. So he has to go out there and enforce his will on the game and play his game the way he's capable of playing it. Bip, you're bringing up all these names from my my past as a kid. Tim, <laughs> Tim Flannery, the Flan man. Tim Flannery was my infield coach at the San Diego School of Baseball. I know you remember that. And uh, I, people, you know, up here in Northern California, you know, Tim Flannery was a third base coach for the Giants. People forget what a, what a fiery little player Tim Flannery was back in the day. That's right. He, uh, we communicated the other day. It was something that happened with a, a, a store, a um, clothing store. He wanted to, to pass the information to me, and we had a good laugh. It's a, it's a store called Uomo, and it's in San Francisco. So if you go in that store, Tony, and you buy a shirt, and you go, well, okay, I'll spend $45. When you get to the register, he's going to say, no, that's 75 You Uomo. And so we get a laugh out of that, <laughs> you know, but Timmy taught me back when I was young to play with everything you got, because remember, he wasn't the most talented guy, but he hustled and he played extremely hard and he played every position. He said, Hey, you can do this. And he always instilled confidence in me. And so I remember, you know, just a, a quick thought when he retired, he was playing third base that day. And Jack McKeon said he's going to retire today. He says, if we're on the fifth inning, I want you to run out there and so he can get an ovation when he comes off. And I did that, and we high-fived. And, um, man, he and I have been close ever since. But he was the guy who told me every day, you get two hits or a heart attack. That's how hard you have to go. So I learned a lot from Timmy. And I told him sometime, I said, Timmy, that advice you gave me, it almost gave me a heart attack. Because <laughs> I was trying too hard sometimes. <laughs> You know, and I, and I think about that period of baseball and I think about the veteran guys you were around. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it's it's pretty amazing that, you, I mean, you got to be around Steve Garvey. You got to yeah, be around yeah. the Goose. You got to be around, as you said, Nettles. I mean, you're talking about some uh, hardcore veterans. Of course, I know you're very close with Tony Gwynn, one of the greatest players of all time, the Hall of Famer and uh, 
Uh, sad that we lost him so soon, but you were around some some really great players there when he first came up. I, I was. You know, the, the first time I met Tony, he gave me that inside-out swing, the five-hole swing, and I had no clue what that was. But it took a guy like Gary Templeton to break my swing down and to build it back up to the point where I understood now when Tony spoke what he said. And I got a chance to work with Tony for about six years there. And he helped me become a better hitter. We would go up in the cage during the winter time and hit off the tee. And I would watch what he did. And he'd watch what I do. And he'd correct some things that I was doing. And it was just one of those things where, you know, you have to be educated to understand what a professor is saying. And so I educated myself. And I was able to understand what the professor was saying. <laughs> you know, so it was just amazing what those veteran guys did for young guys back then. They taught us things that worked. They didn't teach us things that were fatty or things that might work today and not work tomorrow. They taught us things that would consistently work if you put the work in to make it happen. So I was blessed to be around great veteran guys who cared about me and wanted me to succeed and taught me things that I needed to know. Now, after you know these things, you've got to work on them yourself because without hard work, you're not going to get the basic fundamentals or the muscle memory that you need in order to make adjustments to be successful. And those are some of the things that they taught me back then. You know, my producer, the commander, Commander Cody, does not care about batting average whatsoever, Bip. He doesn't care about contact. He just cares about driving the ball out of the ballpark. But I got a <laughs> feeling in this 60-game season, I, I, I got a feeling we're going to see a little more small ball. We're going to see a little more contact. Uh you know, in a hundred and sixty in a hundred and sixty game season, you strike out, you hit home runs. But I think in a sixty game, I think we're gonna get a little old school here. What do you think? I think guys are gonna start using the opposite field. Lefty's going to left field, righty's going to right field to beat certain pitches because when you start talking about analytics, you try to lift the baseball, you strike out a lot. And in baseball, when you don't put the ball in play, to me, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. You walk it back to the dugout after a strikeout. So I believe what you say, Tommy, guys are going to have to play small ball, get guys on base, still a base, get guys in a scoring position with less than two, and get the guy in. It doesn't matter if you drive the ball out the yard. And that's okay, too, because when you drive the ball out the yard, hopefully there's men on base and you get a crooked number on the board. But the bottom line is you have to get guys on base and you have to get them home. Yet They have to touch home plate. And if you're swinging for the fences and you're hitting solo home runs, what about the other team who's putting two guys on and hitting three run homers? So you've got to play small ball. Take your walks. Find a way to get on, whether it be hit or error. And, you know, find a way to touch the plate. But I agree. I definitely agree. It's going to be a lot of small ball. And you're going to have to make consistent contact. It can't be swing and miss, walk back to the dugout after striking out when you've got a guy out there on second base with less than two outs. Uh, Cody, you're uh, speaking to an all-star. and. Um, when Bip Roberts was in the All-Star game, I was actually at that All-Star game, and I was one of very many who stood up and applauded him at that All-Star game. Uh, do you have any rebuttal there, Commander Cody? The only thing, Bip, I, I said to Tony, and this is something David Forrest told us before, ball go far, team go far. So I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a modern-day analytics fan where I feel like you can evaluate a player more today with – what they do outside of batting average with their their OPS and OPS plus and 
how many home runs they hit. And, you know, I know a lot of people are trying to sway away from RBIs. I don't. I still think RBIs are important and runs scored. And, yeah, I'm a big fan of rated runs created plus. But when he says I don't care about batting average, it's half true, half wrong. It's half oh. true where I, I don't care when I evaluate players now, but it does matter when guys are on base. I agree with you 100% you want to play small ball, but I feel like this year with the with the pitchers not batting anymore, we could see the end of the sacrifice bunt, and that could be something that's uh, going to be a little different for a lot of people to understand in 2020. Yeah. I, you, know, you know, everybody watches the game differently. The one stat that I want to see more of this year is the game-winning hit or the game-winning RBI, no matter how it's scored. And that's one stat we used to really pride ourselves in during our era. Who got the game-winning hit or the game-winning RBI? And so whether it's a ground out or whether it's a sacrifice fly, whatever, the bottom line was you get the W. And so we had a tendency not to really look at analytics because we were in a game of results. We needed results. And so if I swing hard, hit the ball hard, and the ball jumps off my bat, and it went 100 miles an hour, but it was caught, that means nothing to us. We want a results where if I swing and hit the ball hard, I get the guy in or I get the guy over. And those were the results we were looking for. It was about the eye test more so than the, what the numbers added up to be. So I understand both uh, analytics and the eye test, but the eye test always tells me, who can play and who can't play. So I've never asked you this, and I'm going to ask it now. I was there in 1992 with my mother for the Midsummer Classic. It was the all-star game held in San Diego at Jack Murphy Stadium. It was a horrible game because uh, Tom Glavin couldn't get out of the first inning. Ted Williams right. threw up the first pitch, I remember. You were with the Cincinnati Reds, but you were coming back to San Diego you got a standing ovation from like 56,000 yeah. people when they announced you. What was that like for you, Bip Roberts? You come back to San Diego, you started your career with the Padres, and you're in the All-Star game, and you get a standing ovation. Tony, when you mention that, boy, that just hits my heart, man. I mean, I remember that day like it was yesterday, and when he mentioned my name and I saluted because, you know, San Diego is a military town, and my uncle had my uncles were in the military. They said, "Hey, when they mention your name, give them a salute." And so I gave them a salute, and the crowd just man, you all stood up and cheered for me, and it was confirmation that I was home, and and I just felt so good. I mean, I was on cloud nine, and all I wanted to do now was get out there and play and show you guys why you rooted for me, and. Later on in the ball game, I got in and I faced uh, Jeff Montgomery. He threw me a slider and I ripped him the right field for a base hit. And the crowd went crazy again. And then later on in the game, bases were loaded and I faced Dennis Eckersley and we battled and battled. He threw me a slider and I ripped him the right field and two runs scored. And I just felt like confirmation, you know. You know, you get that confirmation at a certain point in time where you really believe that you're a great player or a good player. And that was my confirmation moment. The crowd was behind me. And I delivered for him. And I just felt so good. I mean, I remember at the end of the game, my uncle, he jumped in the car with me. And um, I put the top down on my car. And I just said, he said, why are you doing that? I said, I just want to smell the air because I want to remember this the rest of my life. And he just laughed. He said, boy, you're crazy. I said, no, this was one of the most special days of my life. 
and I didn't want to forget that day. So I appreciated you guys so much, Tom. You guys are always supportive of me. And um, even when I struggled as a young kid, Tom was still supportive of me. And when I came back, they really gave me all the energy I needed to perform. And so San Diego fans have always and will always be number one in my heart. I shortchanged you. 59,372 <laughs> I mean, when you play an all-star game, I mean, think about that. I mean, Jeff Montgomery was a great closer for years for the Royals. You're facing the Hall of Famer, Dennis Eckersley. I mean, there were so many Hall of Famers in that game. Uh, I mean, what's it like when you're playing? I mean, you're in this game. You're in this clubhouse in the National League, but you look over at the American League. Th- these are the, like, like the greatest players who've ever played. Absolutely. And I mean, I had the honor of on television announcing our starting lineup. Joe Carter had the, uh, you know, he, he announced the American League team. I announced the National League team. And just from the time I got there, I just felt like, wow, I, now I understand what Tony and these guys have always, you know, strive for. And to get um, to get to this game, it's, it's like a, it's the biggest honor you can get during the season. You know, I mean, the ultimate goal is to win a World Series. But before the World Series, there's the All-Star game. And to, to have Lou Pinella say to Bobby Cox that Bip Roberts was my All-Star, that was the ultimate for me. So um, I think Andre Dawson was left off, and some people were upset and said, well, he should be there instead of Bip Roberts. But Lou Pinella said I was having a great year for his team, and I deserved to be there. And, and Bobby Cox said, okay. And so he put me in there. And you know, then when you get there, you see all these great players. Wow, I'm amongst all of these great players. And you want to keep a level head and not just run over to everybody and get autographs and just be all giddy and all that. So I tried to fit in the best I could and just, you know, sit back and watch, not say much, but enjoy myself. But I just watched some great ball players play that day. And again, you know, I, that's a day I'll never forget because it, everything that happened that day, was so positive and it was so beautiful today in San Diego. The weather was great. And, you know, the game wasn't all that great, but just the, the, the idea of being there and being a part of it, it, it just made my career. It was the best one, the best days I've ever had. All right, before we get out of here, promote your cutoff, man. I mean, I live across the street from a park and three little league fields, and I see baseball, softball, kids are working out as we speak uh, constantly. I mean, the cutoff man to me is, is, is a great training tool that both baseball and softball players can use and be very effective. Yeah. The cutoff man by teammate sports, you can go on the website and look it up cutoff man. And what it does is it allows you to, you know, have everyone at one time working on certain drills without moving guys around to play catch during the drill. And so it teaches you how to throw to a target. It allows you to get more reps, in a shorter period of time. And now when you're throwing to a target, now during the ball game, you've already set your seat up to do the right thing, and now you just throw to a target. Something Ken Cavanetti learned um, when he was working with Gary Templeton, throw to a target. And once you learn how to throw to a target, it makes you one of the best players that you can possibly be. And with the cutoff man, it has a bucket in it. So after you throw all your balls into that net, it goes right to a bucket. So, I mean, it take the bucket after you you a lot of time and you get better a lot in a lot period of time. And where can we find it again? Go to teammatesports.com 
and you'll see the cutoff man, and there's a video on there of how teams use it. Some teams have four on the field at one time because they want to get as much work in as they can because some teams only have a two-hour practice or hour-and-a-half practice, and so they want to maximize the time they're on the field. And so some of the junior colleges have four, four on there at one time. So it tells me that it works because when people buy more than one, and they say, Coach, this is one of the best things that we've ever seen. It just gives me a lot of pride to know that I had something to do with the manufacturing of it. So it's a great product. People should try it out. You are the best, Bipster. And next time we talk, we'll be talking about actual real games, of course. Uh, can't wait to have you throughout the season here on Ace Cast Live. County, love you, man. Thanks for having me on. Always great to have my guy on, Bip Roberts. He was one of my favorites. Man, I loved watching him play as a kid. And then Marty Lurie. Marty Lurie obviously has a show on KMBR. He used to have a show on before uh, before A's games years ago. But when you want to talk about a true baseball historian, that's Marty Lurie. Always love having him on the program. Here's Marty. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he's one of our baseball historians. And, of course, you can hear him on KMBR 680 doing Giants baseball, doing the pregame show. Marty Lurie joins us. Marty, great to have you on the program. We've missed you. <laughs> Absolutely. You're doing a great job, Chris. And I know you put in a lot of time. And let's see where all this goes. But, uh, you know, the baseball news is still out there. And we have to give the audience a little bit of the color of baseball, too. It can't all be statistics and pandemic. Uh, there's more to baseball than that. You know, the, the, what I wanted to start today with is, you know, we've talked about what you have done with the Negro League Museum. You and Vida uh, narrating the, the video there. And it's such a special place. And we're celebrating the 100 years of Negro League baseball. And I recently had on Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Museum, who I know you know. And I think this is going to be a special year for the museum. It's such a great place. And the way we're going to honor Negro League baseball, I think, is really going to push people to Kansas City to go to this great museum. Well, I hope so. Uh, you can go online and see it as well. <clears throat> uh, last weekend, I, I really focused on Larry Doby and his debut for the Cleveland Indians in the American League on July 5th of 1947, just three months after Jackie Robinson. And Larry was only 22 and uh, didn't get the reception that Robinson got in any way. It was much more hostile from his teammates and uh, got in like 20 games in the whole year for this 22-year-old kid. He was a second baseman and Joe Gordon wasn't going to let him play. Eddie Robinson, the first baseman, wouldn't even shake his hand. And he sat around. Then over the winter, they made him a center fielder. And as you know, and your family was part of 1948, uh, 1948 Cleveland Indians win the uh, American League pennant and then win the World Series with Larry Doby as the center fielder. So I wanted to acknowledge it. I acknowledge it every year. And Phil Dixon from the museum was on with me. And we had a good show. And then earlier, we also touched on uh, July the 8th, which is the date of the birthday of Satchel Paige in 1906 and also the major league debut for the cleveland indians of satchel page of, of july 8th of 1948 and he went six and one was instrumental in getting the indians into that playoff with the red sox so we we uh sort of spotlighted both over last weekend and i agree with you there's so much history 
of the Negro Leagues. There's so many wonderful players and so many stories that more we can do to tell the story, the better it is for all the baseball fans. You know, I brought, I'm glad you brought up uh, Larry Doe because I brought that up with Bob Kendrick. It's something that has really fried me over the years. As you mentioned, my grandfather got a chance to play against him. Uh, you know, if you went around, and I think it's great the way we honor Jackie Robinson, but but I think we're doing a disservice to all the other guys who, did the, who went through the exact same thing. It's almost kind of lazy to me that – I mean, if you walked around in Major League Baseball and asked people who was the first guy to do it in the American League, I guarantee you modern-day players, 90-something percent, maybe even higher than 95 percent, would have no clue. But that's baseball's fault because we haven't honored a guy who did the exact same thing Jackie Robinson did in the exact same year. Exactly. And he was only 22. He was just a kid. He hadn't gone to UCLA. He hadn't played football. Hadn't done all the things, hadn't been in the military like Jackie, uh, hadn't gone through a court martial. And, you know, Jackie was a completely unique person. Larry Doby was not that. And Larry Doby had to persevere being a 22-year-old. He was a fabulous athlete. But just think about it, Chris. They signed him as a second baseman, and he ended up playing center field the next year for a world champion. So I agree with you. I agree with you. I do it every year, July the 5th. I celebrate the inaugural game of Larry Doby in the American League, and I applaud you for what you do with it as well. Uh, and, and you think about, you know, what a career he had. He was a manager. He's a Hall of Famer. I just, I, and, and, and even the other guys, Josh Gibson, you mentioned Satchel Page. We were kicking around Satchel Page. It's hard to believe he pitched till he was 56 years old. Well, it's incredible. He pitched in 1964, was it, or 65, I forget, uh, for the Kansas City Athletics and Charlie Finley. And, you know, with the A's, Charlie had all those promotions. And he brought back Satchel Page, who was either 58 or 59 years old, and started him against the Boston Red Sox. And he went three innings and gave up one hit only to Carl Yastrzemski. And at 59 years old, and Renee Latchman caught him. I've talked to Renee about it, and one of our favorites. And Renee was only 18 or 19 at the time. And he caught Satchel. And uh, Satchel Page pitched to the American League in the mid 60s. And he was like 59 years old and threw three shutout innings against the Red Sox. That's such great history and stories about our game. You know, for someone like yourself, I, 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 I don't think people realize your love for the game. It's just not Major League Baseball. I mean, obviously, you're so versed on the Negro Leagues. I mean, all of the reading you've done on the Pacific Coast League. You have researched baseball at all levels like no one I know. Knowing how much you love the game, when you now look back and what we have missed now, what have you missed the most about the game? Well, this year, and the stories. Uh, really. And, you know, what you've described is what baseball is all about. It, it's sort of religion. It's sort of uh, the oral history of the game, stories being told from generation to generation. We're now going back and, and getting more stories and digging through newspaper accounts. And Phil Dixon wrote a tremendous book about a Dizzy Dean and Daffy Dean tour uh, that they went on in the 30s. And he wrote the story from the perspective of the Negro League players, which no one had ever done before. So I think what I miss the most about baseball this year are the stories and, and the stories that, that inevitably come with the game. 
because the game is built for drama. The game is built for underdogs and the game is built for going through a six month season to see what will happen. So the most I miss really are the stories and let's see where we go. Will we have a story of 2020 that's still up in the air? Well, God, I hope we do. And Marty, you know, when I think about my lifetime, I, I guess the craziest season, I mean, other than the strike, which was um, horrible, I think at 81. And I was young mm-hmm. in 81, and they split up the seasons, and there was two halves, and I, that was pretty crazy. Is there anything comparable, if we do get 60 in and the playoffs, has baseball ever seen anything like this? No, not not this uh, small amount of games. You'd have to go back to the 1800s for that. But, uh, you know, in 1918, we had the pandemic and there was a real issue whether baseball was going to even have a season. And they negotiated. First, they wanted the season to end in July. And they negotiated with the Army Department uh, to get the season right up to Labor Day. So that season ended at about 130, 135 games. And then we had the Cub Red Sox World Series right after that in 1918. But that's about as close as I remember for something like this, other than what you say. Of course, the 94 strike, uh, 95 starting off late, and 81 coming back uh, around the All-Star game, I think it was in Cleveland, uh, to bring it back at that point. But nothing like this. I mean, with, with two spring trainings, uh, no fans going to the games, players opting out, and every city in the country under the siege of this virus, whether they want to admit it or not. And we've never had anything like this ever as a country. And plus, we've got the violence of 1968. Uh, We've got conventions coming up in August. Who knows what that's going to look like? And we've got the depression of the 30s, of people out of work. And then we have the pandemic, uh, the, the medical issues going on. So there's nothing in our history that's ever affected us as a country or as a sport of baseball like we have this year, nothing. So when we look at a 60-game season, I mean, this is going to be, you know, every single game is magnified. If you Mm -hmm. win or you lose, it's like gaining or losing somewhere between 2.7 and 3 games for every win or every loss. So if you lose four in a row or you win four in a row, you're either going to feel like this is great or or this is death. How do you think managers are going to uh, play this out on a daily basis? Because there is no, hey, it's early. You got to go out and win every game. Yeah, I think they're going to do that. I think the question is uh, when you have your losing streak. Uh, if you have it at the beginning of the year, it's, say you can work with it. If you have it in the middle of September, it could knock you out like any other baseball season. But I think uh, with the an- the analytics and statistics that we have today, that every game is going to be played differently. We're going to have shorter pitching staffs, shorter stints for the pitchers, more pinch hitting, more trying to get that edge to win a game. I think that's going to be the big difference for me. But look, it's 60 games, and it starts essentially, let's say, August 1st. You've got two months, and you're in the pennant race. You know, there, there are you know 18 teams, and that by August 1st, they'd be you know, getting – tea times for golf with you and Larry you know they would be doing that um it, it, but we don't have that we have a pennant race that starts in August and and we have hey get hot 
just stay in the thing and who knows what can happen. So it's going to be interesting. I don't think uh, a few losses will do anything. I think it's a question of, you know, you're still 60 games. You know, you got to win 35, 37, 38 games. You're going to have to play good baseball to do that. You know, Fangraphs did a simulated 60-game season, and I want to say they came down with, at the end of the year, there was like 13 or 14 teams right there for a wild-card spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe it. And look, uh, I'm not saying that we won't even expand it to 16 teams. Who knows what's going to happen here? And nobody knows what's going to happen over the next few weeks in this country with the coronavirus, with the cities, whether we're going to have to shelter in place again or go backwards. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So, heck, um, I, I say, look, they may play 40 games. Who knows what's going to happen? But you know something, Chris? I don't care. As long as they play baseball and they're healthy, I'm all for it. It's a petri dish of a season. I don't even look at it as a real season. Uh, you look at the schedule, the printed schedule. Usually you got a piece of paper with six months on it. You got two months. It looks crazy. And that's, that's what we've got. So if they want to have pinch runners in the 10th inning, if they want to pitch backwards, if they want to run around the bases backwards, I don't care what they do. 2020, 2020 is for the health of the country and the health of the baseball players. I don't care what they do, the way they play the game. It's nothing that we've ever seen before. And I don't take it. I don't say, well, you know, if you win the batting title, you're a great hitter. Yeah, you're a great hitter if you can play 60 games and get through spring training. That's the key. Whoever ends up at the World Series, if this thing goes for three months, four months, and there is a World Series champion, it's probably the, it's almost like going through World War II uh, and, and ending up on the right side of it. So who knows where it's going? I don't care what they do as long as they stay healthy. I really don't. You know, uh, growing up in San Diego and Ted Williams High School was my rival high school. So I, I played many a games at Ted Williams Field back in the day. And, of course, Ted's the last to hit 400 at 406. I know it's only 60 games, but I think it would be fascinating to watch a guy hit 400. Why not? It would be great. I'd like to see him play 60 games. Let's start with that. Uh, and if he can hit 400, terrific. More power to them. If, if you can throw no hitters, terrific. If you can hit, you know, in 60 games, 30 home runs, terrific. I, it'll all be fun to watch. That's why we love the game. We love to follow those stories. I was going through some of my archives last night, and Louis Gonzalez had hit 30 games in a row oh, in the early 2000s. And I said uh, to Leonard Coppett, who was on the show with me, a great baseball writer, I said, Leonard, he's not getting any play. He says, let him hit 10 more games in a row and he'll get a lot of play. So let's wait for the story. If, if you can hit 440 games or 50 games, fabulous. It'll be a great story to follow every day. Now, it's really anybody's game. And I know when you say that, there's a lot of people probably roll their eyes. But in 60 games, you get out to a hot start. I don't care what team it is. You start gaining confidence. Who knows? You cover the Giants. Do you think they have a possible shot in 60 games? Why not? Uh, they're so statistically oriented. And, you know, they're going to they have so many pitchers. And as you say, anything can happen. So let's see. They don't hit a lot. Uh, but they're going to use every platoon advantage. If Crawford's not hitting and Belt's not hitting, 
They're going to pinch hit for them earlier in the game uh, than we've ever seen before. Everything that Gabe Kapler does is scripted. He's got the whole season. He's probably played every game already on his computer uh, for the 60 games to see where it's going to go. Believe me, they play the games uh, on the computer all the time. Everything is scripted. So uh, they're, they've got a lot of young players. And the two things about baseball, one, you got to pitch, and two, you got to catch the ball. If you can do that, you're going to be in just about every game. So let's see if they get a bullpen and, you know, pitching is four innings, five innings, and then finishing it up. Yeah, why not? Uh, Look, for 60 games for two months, you're in the race. It's August. You know, if this was a normal season and it was August 1st, the Giants would be buried and dead, and they would have traded half the team already. So it's, it's all new. So you get excited and you go out there and try to win as many games as you can. Yeah, they're in it. Everybody's. I don't think anyone is out of it. I don't think anyone's out. Plus, we got to see what the health is. Will the Dodgers be healthy? Will the Padres be healthy? They've already got Jorge Mateo on the Corona list that they got from the A's. Uh, what's going to happen with Arizona down there? Uh, Colorado? Who knows? Arizona's a mess just as a, as a state. So there's so many variables. Who knows what's going to happen? I, this is going to be fascinating to me if they can pull it off. Fascinating. You know, I was not shocked at all by the news today of Buster Posey because he's been hemming and hawing the whole time. And I'm not I'm not going to anybody who says I don't want to play because of this pandemic. I totally understand people have wives and grandparents and parents and kids and you want to protect the bubble around you. So I totally understand that. And I look at it from a standpoint of the of the timeline. You know, both Buster Posey and Joey Bart are college guys. And for Joey Bart. This is kind of when Posey came up and took over. Are we about to see, I'm not going to say the end of the Buster Posey era because he still has money left on his deal, but is this the start of the Joey Bart era? I hope so. We'll see. Farhan keeps denying it. He keeps saying, well, he needs double A, triple A, catching time and all that. The guy was a second pick in the country out of Georgia Tech. I've seen the guy in spring training for a couple of years. To me, he looks like a major league catcher. He may not be the best major league catcher around. I think he's got a major league bat. And I think it's insane in this 60-game season, for whatever it's worth, not to have this guy play. Where are you going if you're the Giants? Your only future is in two or three years when all these guys make it, Luciano and then the rest of them. Get get Art playing. What are you going to do? You know, put him up in Sacramento for two months and let him uh, take batting practice every day? What's that worth? Get him in games. I think it's insane the way they're holding him back. I really do. Yeah, I was uh, back in Detroit this past year. I got to meet Al Kaline, Mr. Tiger. And you talk about a guy who went from prom and graduation and became the youngest uh, starter in all-star history for a position player. When you're ready to rock, you're ready to rock. And, And I think about Posey's future. You've been watching him. What do you think truly his future is in Major League Baseball? Well, you have to, he's still young enough to hit. Uh, you don't know and to catch and be a mentor. I would think, I would think if 2021 comes around and everybody's healthy, that Bart and Posey would share some of the catching time. Uh, Farhan's got to deal with veterans on this team. He's going to clean them out as quickly as he can. Posey's going to hang around. Uh, if it's safe and healthy and he's got the, the new twins coming, 
of course, uh, and that's the reason why he's not going to play this year. But he's got a Hall of Fame legacy, probably needs a little more on the resume. But uh, I think he's here, and uh, 21, he'll play, and then 22 is the option. Uh, if they don't sign him, uh, bring him back for $20 million, which they will not. There's no way in the world they will. They owe him $3 million. So I think next year is a year, if he's healthy and, and the world is normal, and let's hope that happens, that Posey has a year where he splits it with whoever's going to be the successor. Well, it is always an honor to have you on the program. Of course, uh, you're a familiar voice to all A's fans for all of your years being around the A's. And hopefully uh, the next time we talk will be an exhibition game between the Giants and the A's, hopefully before we get this season going. Yeah, it's supposed to be next Monday and Tuesday. Uh, so that'll happen. And I know the broadcasters are excited about it. And uh, I've said this all along, Chris. Uh, it's up to the health of the players and the country. And we see these states now that are spiking so high that have major league cities. What are you going to do if they, if they shut down those cities and where are you going to put the team? So we're a long way from being out of the woods on this thing, but we'll do our best. And the other thing I said, and, and I don't know what the numbers are, but a lot of the players who tested positive were intake players coming in. If they can create this bubble, and if people can stay within it and, and adhere to the strict regulations of this bubble, maybe they can beat it. Maybe they can make this happen without more positive tests. So we're a long way from the end of it, but they're doing everything they can to make it possible. And I, I guess I'll say this. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> and that's why I'm looking forward to the first game. Well, it's always great talking ball with you. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Be safe. All right, you too, Chris. You do a great job. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for A's Unfiltered. I want to thank the president of the Negro League Museum, Bob Kendrick, Doug Glanville, Bip Roberts, and Marty Lurie. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.